Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Kari. I'm your host, Kari Filer. This will be the first conversation, uh, and in that vein, it won't be a conversation at all. This is my first attempt, foray, into podcasting. Uh, not something that I aspire to do off the gate, but I do consider myself a thinker. I'm someone who likes to concern himself with public issues and this seems to be the best way to get your ideas out there. Uh, I like to practice my oration. Uh, welcome to to the show. Hopefully we can discuss, engage in some good ideas and make our society better. For the structure of this podcast, this show, I will simply introduce myself, talk about some topics, the election, uh, critical race theory, blackness and race generally, my history, my inspirations, and my overarching philosophy. It's going to be about an hour long. I'm going to take my time and probably be probably be browsing the web <laughs> while I discuss these things. Uh, so I hope you like it. I hope you tune along. So today is October 29th, 2020. Uh, we are about four days out from the general election of 2020, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. I'm not a Trump supporter by any stretch of the imagination. I think that he's a blowhard, a liar, a narcissist, and all those things. Um, I don't like Hillary Clinton either. I don't like Joe Biden either. I'm actually an Andrew Yang supporter, a Yang gang. I believe in basic income. Uh, for anybody who's seen my podcast, and if you're here, I mean podcasting my blog, and if you're here listening to this, you've probably seen something about my blog. So we're, if you're here listening to this, we are probably on the same page about basic income. Uh, I think it's a wonderful thing. As far as how this election will go, I suppose I should make a prediction, uh, as people tend to do. So I think Joe Biden will win. And I predict that Donald Trump will have shown the Republican establishment that he controls a sizable chunk of their base. If I can talk about the what I think the history of the Republican Party is, I think that they, their base is conservative people, conservative common people, people who believe in religious tradition, social tradition. Uh, they believe that we do things the way that we've always done things for a reason. They believe in respecting those traditions first and foremost. I think that's where most common conservative people stand. Uh, and I think that that was the, the party of Lincoln and then those Republicans. And what I think what has happened is that Charles Koch uh, and his ilk – uh, and James Buchanan and and James C. Calhoun have in have have uh, ignited and emboldened this section, this this category of libertarian that defines freedom as well. They define economic freedom and liberty as the ability for an individual uh, to through voluntary trade with other consenting adults acquire as much resource as they possibly can and then they are free to do uh, with that resource and all of those resources 100 percent of those resources ideally whatever they choose to do whatever they whatever they want to do uh, this is their definition of freedom pardon the creaks and the barks in the background i have a creaky chair that i'm sitting in i have a little chihuahua that i live with uh, so he might bark and the chair might squeak pardon those noises 
so I think this is the definition of freedom that exists uh, in the libertarian right. And I believe that definition has taken over much of the Republican Party. Now, of course, people who own businesses and people who own assets uh, tend to support this stance wholeheartedly. But for common conservatives, people who don't own assets and don't own businesses, people who don't want to own assets and businesses, they, don't, they aren't entrepreneurial uh, by their nature. They just want to, they're willing to sell their attention, sell their time for a fair wage, and then they want to go home and raise their families and not worry about their day job. This, this is their actual aspiration. This is the aspiration of many common people. And this aspiration has been denigrated and made to seem less than in our culture for a number of years, and I am wholeheartedly against that stance, against that movement. So there's a, there's a chasm in the Republican Party as far as I can see it, uh, and Donald Trump represents this common, or here's, a th here's an interesting thing about representation, right? Donald Trump doesn't represent this common base as much as he speaks to this common base uh, the his words and his rhetoric resonates with these people uh, so that they feel in their in their selves that he represents them uh, I think it's I think it shows that he does not in a meaningful sense represent their interests he doesn't fight for their interests uh, he, the first thing he did was pass a 1.8 trillion dollar tax cut uh, that was his priority coming into office Trump represents the wealthy elite in our country that's buying up all our politicians, right? That's who he represents. That's who he fights for, uh, even though his rhetoric resonates with, with the common class. And I disagree with that. Uh, I don't think Joe Biden will be much better as far as working for the common people. I think both parties in this country have gotten away from fighting for the common people, hence why I'm making this podcast uh, <laughs> as a common person. We are living through a power vacuum in American history, uh, as tend to happen when empires collapse. Uh, there becomes a power vacuum, and you need leaders to step up, and you need people who can do to go do. And it just so happens that this is my thing, oration, thinking, uh, thinking about the common good and and you know it's it's all of our thing right we all sit around and talk about morality we all sit around and talk about politics uh, i'm no different than anyone in that regard and so this is just my my entry uh entry into the to the popular conversation society is changing and i believe that one should change with it we are a beautiful species uh, and we should continue to adapt and get better and go forward uh, but anyway, that's something I'll get to later as with my whole overarching philosophy. But we're a few days out from the election. Uh, I'm not excited about Joe Biden, just to be clear. I voted for Joe Biden because I think Donald Trump is, is a big orange nightmare. But I do not like Joe Biden. I am Team Andrew Yang, Yang Gang, Humanity Forward. I am part of the UBI party, uh, not left or right. I'm California native and uh, no party preference is where I stand on that. So for the next topic, uh, there's CRT, blackness, and race generally. So critical race theory, as I understand it, is a departure from a postmodern philosophy in that it actually, as far as I know, critical race theorists don't believe that free speech is possible on an individual level. Uh, this is my understanding, and if, I, if there are any critical race theorists listening, 
uh, email me, comment on the blog. Uh, we can we, let's talk about it. But as far as I understand, these, as far as I understand, these these people don't believe that an individual can or should be considered speaking for themselves. Uh, they see, for me, for instance, I'm a black guy, Southern California. Uh, born in 1984 so they would say that no matter how individual i believe myself to be no matter how autonomous i believe myself to be all i can do is speak for blackness speak for maleness and speak for southern californians or speak for americanism if i'm if i'm traveling abroad that's all i can do no matter how i try to be reasonable objective um and not just think for myself hey if that's your if that's your stance that's your stance uh, i disagree and so i think that people can be reasonable I, I guess that calls into question what reasonableness means right what does it mean to be reasonable when we're talking about race and morality I think that being reasonable, or I mean, that's, so that's an interesting question, and this is what this thing is. This is me thinking out loud. Um, when it comes to morality, certainly everyone argues from their own moral position, from their own moral center. You know, we're all the center of our universe, so to speak. Um, morally speaking, we're all the center of our universe. But there is this layer on which we all agree. Uh, which is that we're all most of us agree that the other people are out there, right? When when you see me, you don't you see me as a black male, but you don't actually carry yourself as if I'm just a figure of your imagination. And I don't do the reverse, right? And people don't we don't tend to treat each other as if we're actually figments of our. We believe that other people are actually out there, right? Uh, at least you tr that's how we treat people. So in that regard i believe that we can have a morality that's based on seeing the other people uh as really existing and we start there okay you recognize i exist i recognize you exist now the crt people would argue that okay whatever position i put forward whatever solution or trade-off that i put forward it would necessarily or inevitably be for the benefit of the black males of the southern californians of the americans and whatever other group i identify with uh, that's how they see it. As far as I know, that's how they see it. I disagree with that. Uh, I think, or let, let's, let me say it this way. I think it's very possible for an individual to say, okay, I'm going to argue for my family positions, yes. And then I'm also going to argue for the position that might benefit my city. And I'm also going to argue for the position that might benefit my state, my nation, and ultimately my species. And hopefully I'm arguing for a position that benefits all those. And I think that's possible. Uh, I think ideas like freedom, justice responsibility selflessness uh, i think those you know a lot of judeo-christian values i think those principles and values guide us down this road towards moral positions that do benefit us and our neighbor and their neighbor and the next city over and so on and so forth uh, all the way to the species i think that's possible i think that's i think that's even uh common i think that's very common i think most people hold that stance uh, I think that the common actually represents a silent majority in this country right now uh, that are looking for people to articulate these, I would call them the new centrist positions. I think UBI is a centrist position. Uh, that might sound <laughs> that might sound odd in other conversations, but I do. I think that's a very centrist, because I'm not saying that 
only progressives should get basic income or only conservatives should get basic income. I'm arguing that citizens should get basic income. Um, and that's out of pragmatism because you can't have a nation that provides a basic income to anyone who comes into the nation. Uh, that's not practical at all. And so you have to have some limit in order to have a functioning system. And hopefully uh, America can lead the way. We can create a basic income system in which we provide our citizens with attention autonomy uh, through financial independence. And then other nations can build systems inside and of themselves for their citizens. Uh, till eventually, because everybody is more or less a citizen of somewhere, right? Um, yeah, and then we expand our species that, that way, but that's what I'm thinking. But back to race. Um, I don't like to look at race as my main characteristic. Uh, I don't like to look at male as my main characteristic. Um, I like to look at my main characteristic as familial. Uh, my last name is Filer, so I work for the Filers. That's, that's how I define myself, uh, prim uh, how I choose to define myself primarily. Uh, yeah, I go Filer, and then after that, I think my next chosen delineation is probably American. Um, and then after American... After American, I'd probably go Angelino. Uh, I'd like. I want to fight for Los Angeles. I'm, I'm born here. This is my home. And if a man can't fight for his home, what can he fight for? Um, yep. So that's what that's what I want to be. And admitting why, admitting that all those are ultimately arbitrary. They're ultimately chosen, right? Um, and I'm going to get to this a little bit later with my overarching philosophy, but our moral North Star is ultimately an arbitrary one, chosen one, but I'll argue for that in a bit. Uh, but on race, yeah, I, I rather, I want to continue the work that Dr. King uh, and his group and the, civil, and the Freedom Fighters succeeded in. They succeeded in moving the moral center of this nation that made overt racism patently uncool. Uh, they made oh, and they made the law aspire and operate on colorblind principles. That is to say, the law operates on colorblind principles. People see color. You're gonna, that's the first thing you see about a person is what color they are. Of, of course, and so colorblindness as a social phenomenon is unrealistic, but is un, unachievable. But social, but col, but colorblindness as a legislative phenomenon is grasped. We have it, uh, and we can continue to make it better. We can improve it. Uh, it's not perfect. It's not a perfect system we have, but we can make the system better. Uh, maybe compared to many of the modern progressives, I'm conservative in that sense, in that I think that capitalism has a lot of redeeming uh, qualities. I think that the American Constitution has a lot of redeeming qualities, uh, and I think that democracy has a lot of redeeming qualities. And so in this American capitalist democracy, I think there is much beauty to be found and to be improved on and to be built on. I am not part of the burn-it-all-down crew that's making a lot of noise these days. Uh, and they're out there. I've, I've had conversations with burn-it-all-down people. Um, what can I say about burn-it-all-downness? I don't think that's... About burn-it-all-downness... I would say I would say burn it all downness doesn't give enough weight to the difficulty in building things. Anybody can burn a house down, 
you give them a lighter and a can and a can full of gas and they can burn the building down tell that person to build that same building build that same house it's much harder to build things than it is to destroy them and so the burn it all down philosophy doesn't give enough credit to that it's hard to build a nation and build a society and and build our future that's hard work and so we should always going forward endeavor to understand and appreciate all the hard work our ancestors have done before us and improve their designs their designs won't be perfect our designs aren't perfect our children's designs won't be perfect no designs are perfect it's not about perfection it's about understanding what our ancestors did recent and distant and building on their work building on what they've built and making it better and and improving it um side note (laughs) there's a little joke that i have about radical libertarians which is so uh, so let's say the the radical libertarian goes up to the commoner and the radical libertarian says hey let's knock this thing over and they were looking at some clay statue and the libertarian says hey let's knock this thing over and the common voter says no we're not going to knock it over so the libertarian reaches out to knock it over and the liber- and the common person knocks their hand away says what are you doing and so the libertarian says i want to help make this thing better so the common person says okay fine so the libertarian gets down on the ground, gets out a chisel and a hammer, and starts nicking away at the base of this thing until it starts to tilt over. And the common person says, what are you doing? And the libertarian says, I'm reforming it to make it more efficient. <laughs> right? Because that's what we've got. We've got libertarians that claim to be reforming our capitalist uh, democracy for the people. But they really just rather tear it down and have all the power for themselves. Uh, Power is a real thing. I'm actually going to make a note here since we've got a long, long time together. No need to rush. Power is an important part of philosophy and, and the way that – and my philo- understanding power is an important part of my philosophy and the way that we're moving through the world. So on race, do I have anything else I want to say on race? Just that the, I, the law should be colorblind. And people will never be colorblind. And I don't think there's any contradiction there. I don't think there's any contradiction there. Uh, we can we can work to, I don't know, uh, one of my favorite thinkers is a guy named Sam Harris. He argues that uh, color, skin color, should be treated the same way that hair color is treated. And so nobody goes around saying, hey, how many blondes work for Google? We need to understand to a number exactly how many blondes work for Microsoft. Um, it's not because it's not an important thing, right? You wouldn't you wouldn't dare think that, you know, anything about a person's character or work ethic based on their hair color. Right. So the same is true for skin color. You wouldn't you shouldn't dare to know anything about a person's character or their work ethic or their capabilities based on their skin color uh, that's not what we're all doing um so that's that's my stance on race uh, like i said I'm, or i guess i should i should mention this as well as long as we're here the history of america is unquestionably a history of race the legacy of slavery so it's October 29th, 2020. Slavery ended in the mid-18th, mid-19th century, right? So, slavery, uh, convict lease system, Jim Crow, separate but equal, redlining, mass incarceration, and the war on drugs. These policies have decimated 
the black American community. And so there's no understanding the history of America without understanding the history of race. And that history is still having pernicious effects in our communities. Uh, and by this hour, I mean black people, right, in, in black communities. That is unquestionable. I'm not, there's, there's no arguing against that. When I argue that race shouldn't be the primary factor by which a person considers their individuality, I'm arguing that going forward. Now, there is a, a criticism of my argument, which is well taken, which is that if you had gone to Martin Luther King and said, hey, Martin, skin color needs to be like hair color, and you shouldn't take it so seriously right now. You could say, well, I understand your position in the long run, but we still have work to do. And there are a lot of people who that's their stance. They look at wealth inequality. They look at uh, the, the inequality in life outcomes and health expectations between white Americans and non-white Americans. And they say there's still a lot of work to do. And that is a reasonable stance. I support that stance. There is still a lot of work to do. I think that work needs to be done socially as opposed to legislatively. That's my stance. I admit the work needs to be done. But I don't think we need to be writing color-considered laws in order to move that forward. I don't think that's helpful. I think that's a step backwards. I think moving forward was getting race out of the law because it was in the law, right? Uh, when, when Martin Luther King and, and the Freedom Fighters were marching, uh, separate but equal was sanctioned by states around this nation. Uh, so that's what they fought against. And that's what they won against. They, they won us the right to vote. Uh, and they won. They won. So let's stand on that victory. Understand that the pursuit of racism has moved from the legislative to the social. And then admit that there's still inequality in the social and come to social solutions. And social solutions come through conversation. That's how we fix society. That's how we fix uh, our what the world we're going to be handing to our children and their children. We have good conversation. We don't write new laws, uh, not in this regard. And so that's my stance on race. Speaking of which, we just had uh, a measure on the California ballot, I think it was statewide, about repealing or no, about reinstating affirmative action in California. I went to UCLA. I, would, I didn't go through the affirmative action program. I just got good grades and got in. Um, I voted against it. I don't think that putting color back into the considerations for for race uh, is a good thing. I hope I didn't get in by affirmative action. As far as I know, I didn't get in I, uh, for posterity. Now that I'm putting this thing out in public, I want to say I don't know that I didn't get in by affirmative action. Maybe they did. Or actually, no, I know they did because it was repealed by 209. It was repealed in the 90s. Uh, never mind. Yeah, so I just got good grades. I got in. Uh, there wasn't an affirmative action when I went to when I went through undergraduate, uh, but I worked hard. I got good, and I got in based on volunteer work that I'd done and research work that I'd done and tutoring that I'd done and grades that I earned, right? So I got in on merit, um, is as much as the school can admit people by merit. Admittedly, they are filtering against Chinese Americans and and just Chinese people and. Uh, Chinese nationals uh, because their scores are so much higher that's going on I'm not commenting or I, I, sh I should comment on that while we're talking about race um, that's more prickly that's more prickly how is that more prickly how's it fair isn't it supposed to be all merit isn't it supposed to be scores isn't it supposed to be just straight, straight scores why can't they just be 50% Chinese uh, I guess this brings the nationalist in me out <laughs> I've got a bit of a nationalist streak, I guess. 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Americans. I want, um, I want American schools to treat American students preferentially. I think, I think I want that. And I think Chinese schools should treat Chinese students preferentially. I want that for every nation. Uh, there's no reason to believe that every nation could have or will have equally enriching universities. Uh, that just won't happen. And so people, you know, we, we in California have a good public school uh, here in the University of California system. And I think it should be should give preferential treatment to Californians and Americans over others. I think it should. Uh, and if you disagree, please argue in the comments below. So my history and my inspirations. Um, I was born single child, single mother, Compton, 1984. Uh, I had a good childhood, right? Played with the neighbor kids and uh, played football in the front yard and had dogs and had a swing set. And, you know, it was, it was a nice upbringing. Um, when I was 12, I decided that I wanted to become a member of the Fruit Town Pyrus. Now, I was growing up, growing up, I saw a lot of gang activity. And by a lot, I mean one out of every 20, 30 people you saw or guys that you saw was part of a gang, right? So a neighborhood that doesn't have any gang activity, this was quite a lot. But it's not as if half the people running around were in gangs. That's not what's going on. They were certainly a minority, but they were a, f they were a flashy minority. Uh, they, they garnered a lot of attention, especially because they purported themselves to be so dangerous, uh, which they often were. I can remember times, or a time, as in multiple times, but there was one time we were, I went to Davis Middle School in Compton. We were after school, I want to say I was after school with some friends, just hanging out, so it must have been about 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and somebody got in a fight with one of the members of the Fruit Town gang. Uh, you know how fights happen in 7th grade, they aren't very violent, if, if, if anybody actually bleeds from their lip it's a huge super huge deal right um so this guy who was a member of the fruit town lost the fight so he walks off he leaves runs off even says i'm gonna go get the big homies so he goes off runs off into his neighborhood off through the across the field we're all sitting there and we're looking at each other and we think to ourselves well we he says he's gonna go get the big homies but there's a question is he actually going to go get the big homies? Uh, claiming to go get the big homies and actually going to get them are two different things. Maybe he's going to get home and realize the error of his ways and decide to pour a glass of orange juice. Anyway, in about 20 minutes, he comes back with about three or four teenagers, must be in their mid to late teens. And we're assuming that they're going to come kill this kid that he just lost the fight to. So we get in our back, we get, grab our backpacks and we hightail it in the opposite direction as fast as we can possibly go. I don't know what actually happened uh, there that afternoon. I ran home. And that's where I grew up. All right? that's the, those are the conditions I grew up in. And even in those conditions, I still wanted to join the gang when I was 12. I had black chucks with burgundy fat laces in them and I had a red burgundy bandana on my wall and that's what I wanted to do that that was my choice that I was making in life at the time and my mother in her infinite wisdom saw that that was a terrible idea uh, and she had been dating a man and was very serious about a man who lived in Covina a city in the San Gabriel Valley uh, and she I think he proposed to her they got engaged and we moved we moved to Covina and so instead of joining a gang 
and getting involved in dealing drugs and probably end up shot or dead or in jail or something. I just smoked a bunch of weed. I just went to Covina, got in with some skaters and some bikers, uh, bicyclers, not, you know, not leather-wearing Harley-Davidson bikers, BMX, and just smoked some weed. (laughs) That's what I did, and that was better. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Mom, for doing that. Uh, I think that saved my life. That was the first time she saved my life. Uh, So that was really, really great. Happy that happened. That's my history uh, as far as that's concerned. And in Compton... I didn't see that many white people. In Compton, I had seen between five and ten white people, as far as I can remember, in my own life, uh, with my own eyes. And so my attitude towards white people was their skin's a different color, their hair's a different color, and their eyes a different color. Other than that, they're regular folks. Uh, but they, there just weren't a lot of them. <laughs> this, this was my idea about white people. I didn't, I didn't see them as particularly better or worse or anything like that they just their skin color was different that was it but even though that was my personal experience i knew by consuming popular culture that white quote-unquote people were better were richer were more powerful more civilized all these things that came to me through the culture i was aware of that i hadn't experienced that in my first-hand experience but i knew that that was out there in the zeitgeist vaguely as a 12 year old but when I moved to Covina, now my neighbor was a white guy. And so I was tripped out. I go, okay, what's this guy going to do? Is this guy going to pour mayonnaise over my fence and call us call us names? I mean, what's going what's gonna to happen here, right? I, I was an idiot 12-year-old, and I didn't know what was going to happen. I was very scared. Um, turns out the guy was really into Bob Lazar, and we talked about UFOs a number of <laughs> A number of times, and I had great conversations with my neighbor guy. My stepdad talked to him all the time. He was cool. Uh, and there were white people in, in the neighborhood and at school. And I said, oh, uh, okay. Uh, see, growing up in the hood, I had heard a lot about how mean white people were. Growing up in the hood, I had heard a lot about how discriminating and and uppity and just snobby white people were. But when I got out to Covina and I was actually moving amongst white people, for the first time, I saw that they were very much regular, normal people. And it opened my eyes. I said, oh, where, where, are, they, where are these villains that I heard so much about? And then I learned a few years later, in hindsight, that there were contradictory messages in this hood messaging. There was one message that said, you know what? The white man, all he wants you to do is get a job and work for him and sacrifice all your freedom. That was one message. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there was another message that said, you know what? The white man wants you to depend on the government and not do nothing. He wants you to not work. So what is it? Right? Does, does the white people want us to work? Do they not want us to work? I learned by moving out of the hood that the hood's biggest enemy is the hood. And that's, that's the way it is now. It wasn't that wasn't true in the 60s. That wasn't true in the 50s. It wasn't true in the 40s. It's true in 2020. The hood's biggest enemy, every hood, is the hood, and the hood's biggest savior is the hood. All right? It's 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 the it's the young men that decide at 12 to join a gang and then perpetuate this this sacrifice of life that's been going on for generations in their own neighborhood. They're choosing that. Nobody's forcing them to do that. Nobody's forcing me to do it. I was there. Nobody was going to force me to do that. Um, we'll continue that on a later date. Moved to Covina. Smoked a bunch of weed. Got in a little trouble. Um, 
yep, got in a little trouble smoking weed. Kind of straightened up, kind of did okay in high school. Uh, what should I say? I want to say my history, my inspirations. Did okay in high school. Didn't go to college straight after high school. Uh, went to community college. Kind of went went on the workforce a little bit. I lived on my own. I uh, lived in Garden Grove and Anaheim. And had different different jobs. Didn't like any of them. Then I got into more trouble when I was in my early 20s. Uh, but then I went to a place called Delancey Street. Straightened me up. Shout out to Delancey Street. If anybody who's ever been through or has considered going to Delancey Street is listening to this audio, kudos to you. And I wish you the very best. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful place. Straighten me up. Straighten me out like a, like a rod. So came out of Delancey Street said, okay, I got to enter the workforce. I'm about 24. And uh, got a job working at a termite slash uh, real estate kind of re- re- refurbished, what did they do? It was called REO, so Real Estate Owned Termite and Pest. Um, with, they would do repairs on homes that were being sold by the banks or they would tent it and fumigate for termites. I was a co-office manager, and then one day my boss gave me Friday off, and I didn't want Friday off. I, <laughs> I needed Friday's pay, but he gave me Friday off anyway. And uh, I said, nope. Okay, that's not good. So I got to go back to school. 24, I went back to school, got a degree in neuroscience from UCLA. I went two years at City College. It was beautiful. I recommend that for everyone. Do City College if you can. I was in Long Beach. Long Beach City College is a particularly good city college. So if you do have a decent city college to go to, save yourself the 20 grand. Go that route. I went that route. I do not regret it. I think it was a good decision. Graduated from UCLA, and I worked to get into a science lab. I got into a science lab. It wasn't particularly nurturing. I failed. Uh, then I said, okay, well, I'm going to build video games, and that that was a decision I made in 2017. I'm still trying to get into the game industry as I record this podcast, and so it's been three years in the making. I'm still going that route. Intellectually, my inspirations were Sam Harris, or were are Sam Harris uh, and Jordan Peterson. Sam Harris, uh, and more these days, Frederick Nietzsche as well. Uh, Sam Harris was the first thinker that I just became so enamored with. I said, I have to know what this man knows after reading The End of Faith. I read it, I think the year it came out. And I said, I have to know what he knows. And I saw that he was a neuroscientist, so I got a degree in neuroscience to, <laughs> to help learn what he knew. So, so I got a degree in neuroscience to help learn what he knew. He, knew. Uh, he has a PhD, I have a BS. Those are different categories of things. Nonetheless, I'm very happy that I went and got a degree in neuroscience because of that. I've actually shaken his hand. Because uh, I went to hear him speak at the Kerbal in, when, near UCLA when I was going there. And then Jordan Peterson. So he, I read all his books except for Islam and the Future of Tolerance. I've heard a lot of lecture on that. I kind of aware where he stands on that. So that's not on my short list for reading. But I've read everything else that he's written. Um, but Jordan Peterson, as far as I'm aware, and this is just in my psyche. I'm not arguing for everything in the world, but for what I've been exposed to. Jordan Peterson was the first thinker that I encountered that had come along and understood Sam's argument and still disagreed with it. See, everybody between that I interacted between 20, what is this, 2010, 2011, and say 2016-ish, whenever Jordan Peterson hit the scene, everybody over that time, time span who disagreed with Sam that I saw disagreed with him because they didn't understand what he was saying. They hadn't consumed enough of his work. Or they, not consumed, but... They just hadn't read enough of his work. Yeah, they hadn't read enough of his work to know what his stance really was. They just take a, they take a paragraph or they take a, a page or a, or a, a two-second soundbite or something he said in an interview or something like that, and they would, they would 
take that little bit and go, oh, what do you mean by this? What do you mean? And they'd attack him in all sorts of ways. But they didn't understand his whole argument. And so, that, hey, that was fine. I was following Sam Harris and, and watching his, his haters fail. But then Jordan Peterson came along. Jordan Peterson, and like I said in my experience, was the first person to say, you know what, Sam? In the moral landscape, you never really explain how we should judge a peak from a valley. And he said, you never say why we should value well-being over anything else. You just bring that along. And Jordan Peterson argued that those are Judeo-Christian values that you're just bringing along. And, you, and maybe you should recognize, maybe you should recognize that, uh, more or less, is what he was saying. I watched the 10-hour debate. Uh, they got four two-and-a-half-hour videos, about 10 hours of, of stage debate. And I listened to both their, their talks, uh, both their podcasts on Sam's. I don't think I don't think Sam's ever been on Jordan's podcast. Um, and I love it. I love it. I love it that he came along and did that. Jordan Peterson is now also on my short list of, uh, of intellectual inspirations. I love what he's done. I love the work he's done. And I am someone who, while I was following Sam, I was a atheist, for lack of a better phrase, kind of, kind of as Sam was is, and then Jordan Peterson came along. I said, "Oh, okay, I can have this definition of God. My my modern definition of God, my current definition of God, is the infinite origin of things. I think that God is the the thing from which all the other things come. So we are here. Uh, no, no doubt you are." You exist, right? You can doubt that I exist, but you can't doubt that you exist. Certainly, you are there, being whatever you're being. Your existence is a thing, right? Your existence is a thing. You really exist. That's a thing. Now, where did that thing come from? Where did Earth, stars, this, this reality, where did this come from, this thing? Well, it had to come from something. Because if you understand the concept of nothing, truly nothing, Right. If you have any any sort of a space or whatever you want to call it, uh, some sort of primary ooze, that's nothing. But but here you have a void where there is literally nothing. Then nothing can come from that, because if anything comes from it, then that means that there's something there for it that it must come from. Right. There's something there for it to come for it from which to come. However, that phrase would go. Right. So if there is anything, then that's something now. I've heard mathematically that it might be the sort of infinite universe theory that the universe is constantly expanding, retracting, expanding, retracting, and it's just been doing it for all of all of the eternities. Sure, why not? At any rate, I look at it like this: even if the universe is just expanding, expanding, contracting, expanding, contracting infinitely all the way back into infinity, I'm comfortable referring to that infinity as God in conversation. I'm comfortable doing that. And so that's the way I look at it. I say that if there is anything, then that something had to have come from something else. Because it couldn't have come from nothing exactly, right? And that something had to come from something else. Had to come from something else. Immediately, you get this infinite regression. So what you get in, from a couple different ways is you get the infinite origin of things. That's what I'm comfortable calling God. And so when I use God in conversation, uh, I am talking about that thing from which our genetic code comes. And I believe that morality does come from our genetic code. And so I guess that takes me into what I'll close this, this segue with. I've got about 20 minutes left. I'm looking at my timer here. 
which is my whole overarching philosophy. Um, I think we should start, I start with my moral North Star being humans, humans everywhere. I, we, we are fleshy, water-based, carbon-based, semi-liquid blobs uh, on this orb that's floating and the other floating orbs. And, and, you know, we don't know where this stuff comes from, right? We don't know why all this is here. But I think we can know that it is here. I think we can assert with confidence that, or at least I can assert with confidence that I'm here. You can assert with confidence that you're here. And so if I take your confidence with a modicum of respect, I'm going to say, okay, you're here too. And so see, so she, so are they. We're all here. So what are we going to do? When we act in the world, we seem to act out multiplication. We seem to, that, that's a principle that we seem to have inherited all the way from our RNA ancestors. So what did the very first RNA do? It multiplied. It created a mirror copy of itself. Then what did that mirror copy create? A mirror copy of itself, which was a literal copy of the first one. Until you get DNA, until you get single cell, multi-cell. All of this has the same principle contained in it, which is replication. We replicate, we multiply. I think we can take that principle into our culture explicitly. We don't have to let it be implicit. We don't have to... We don't have to mask it or, or encode it in things. It, it does encode itself in ritual and practice and symbology and things like this. But we don't have to encode it. We can, we can just say, you know what? Here's a, here's a Christian principle for you. Be fruitful and multiply. Is that in the Bible? Let me see. I'm going to fact check myself. Let me see. Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's biblical, right? Genesis 128. Cultural mandate. Okay. Yeah, be fruitful, multiply. So yeah, let's do that. That's that's what I'm for. That's that's my moral north star. And like I said, that's arbitrary. Uh, I can't tell you that that should be your moral north star. I've got no I've got no ground to stand on to that. Either you agree with me that that's the moral north star, and then we could talk about different ways of getting there, or you say, you know what? Here's a, here's a counter view to that that I've encountered, and I think it's I think it's intellectually consistent. Some people see the human species as a cancer. They say, we are a cancer, and that's the long and the short of it, and the earth would be better off without us. And so it was a girl that I was dating, actually, and she said, um, I don't recycle. <laughs> I'm, I don't care about kids. I don't want to have kids, right? I don't just, I'm going to do whatever I want to do whenever I'm going to do it, and it has nothing to do with the future. Once I'm gone, I don't care. Uh, the human species is a cancer. And I, I thought that idea was cons was consistent. I said, you know what? I can't tell you that it's not a cancer if you're, con if you're convinced it is. Now, one might say, well, why don't you just kill yourself? Uh, I didn't ask her that. I don't know what her response would be. You know, maybe she's a, maybe she's a hedonist. Maybe she's a hedonist for her own existence mixed with uh, a pessimist about the rest of humanity. At any rate, if that's your point of view, I can't tell you that that shouldn't be your point of view. I hope that it shouldn't be. I hope that it won't be. I hope you can come to the side that's going to have kids and tell those kids to have kids and have huge families and picnics and barbecues and celebrations and fireworks and sadness and death and life. That's what I mean. Hey, come to this side, right? I would argue for you, for you to come to this side. But this is where I live. I choose to live here. But let's say you agree with me. You go, okay. Uh, yeah, humans, humans everywhere. Okay. How do we know 
here's something that's relevant to uh, to our day and age, to our day and age, which is how do we how do we navigate information? So in the age of information, how do you how do you navigate when you can go to YouTube and you can listen to a world-renowned scientist give her opinion about any topic? Uh, expert, scientist expert, give her opinion about any topic. And you can watch it in 16 by 9 or 1080, whatever, YouTube, 20 minutes. Okay, you got that. She's standing on a stage. Maybe she's sitting in a chair talking to someone. Then you can click over and you can watch some common person with a well-intentioned opinion, like myself, common person with a well-intentioned opinion, and you can listen to one of us talk about some random thing. Same thing as a scientist for 20 minutes. And if I, or that person, were to claim to be an expert and go on for 20 minutes and have some different opinion, well, how do you know as the viewer? How do you know which one is more reputable than the other? And when you multiply this problem a million-fold, it's easy to see how people can become discouraged about learning anything with any level of confidence uh, from the outside world from the or I should say from the world through their computer screens and the world around them is still very physical there's a, a proverb I think it's a old proverb I don't know that's where I carry it in my head which is believe all of what you do no believe none of what you hear half of what you see and all of what you do so everything I, w- I would say in answer to the question, how do we navigate in the age of information? How do we how do we multiply? How do we become humans? Humans everywhere. I th- now the phrase preponderance of evidence comes to mind. So if if I tell you that Elon Musk is creating reusable rockets and he's blasting them into the atmosphere, he's delivering satellites and astronauts to the International Space Station and into orbit, and then he's landing the rockets and reusing them. If I tell you that that and he's doing it from all around this nation, uh, I think SpaceX is headquartered in Torrance or Hawthorne, somewhere down here. If I tell you that's happening, d- you take my word for it with a grain of salt, always. Take take the first time you hear about some information, always take it with a grain of salt, no matter where it comes from, unless you learn to trust that person, right? But then that's up to you. But go look for, go look for other evidence. Don't just take what I say and then go, okay, well, Kari said it, so that's it. Nope, nobody should do that. Um, please don't. I don't do that with anyone. I don't do that with Sam and Jordan. Uh, now, I, re- I really respect what Sam and Jordan say, and I always think that they're straight shooters, being honest. Um, but they're flawed. They're humans, and they're flawed. And so when they say something, take it with a grain of salt, and then go look for other evidence of it. Go look at some website you trust, and then go look at another website you trust, and go look at a thinker you trust. And when you come across... Seven, eight, nine, ten pieces of evidence to support the same thing about Elon Musk firing these rockets. Maybe then you go, okay, yeah, maybe this thing is really happening. Our grains of salt just have to be bigger. Uh, I I would imagine our grandparents used to use the phrase with a grain of salt, but for them it meant what? Don't believe the this paper, but then when this more popular paper comes out, okay, believe that one. Uh, I guess they had two sources of information, maybe three. Well, we've got. Two million sources of information. The way I look at it right now, I view it as every human being with an opinion is on is online. So there are probably bil- there are billions of opinions online. All of the opinions are online. You can find all of the opinions on all the things. And in that case, you have to be able to think for yourself. You have to be able to reason for yourself. 
Uh, I'm a proponent of scientific reasoning. Uh, I am, I'm, I wouldn't say a trained scientist, but I've done some research, more than the average, right? I'm not a practicing science, but I've done a little bit more science education than, than, the, than your average person who hasn't done it. Uh, and I can say that in the scientific method, you always have to weigh the idea of falsifiability against every claim. So if I tell you that there's a spaghetti monster who wants us all to wear colanders on our heads, I can believe that all day, but I can't claim to know that unless it can be proven false. I can't claim to know anything that can't be proven false. Uh, that's scientific thinking. And so if you see some claims online that aren't falsifiable, then that person who's making those claims can't claim to know them. Those are, those are beliefs. Uh, one example that I've come to recently here is the phenomenon of free will versus physical determinism in the human brain. Either way, whether you believe in the physical determinism or the hu in the human brain or the free will as the ultimate author of my own thoughts, uh, whichever way you stand, that's a belief because we cannot do experiments in time. We, so we can't, I can't go back to a few seconds ago and see if I will say the same thing exactly the same way over again. There's no, there's no time travel here. So because we can't do experiments in time, you can believe that time is linear and everything that's going to happen was always going to happen the way that it does. Or you can believe multiple splits based on, I don't know what you would believe, I believe in the linear thing. So I don't know what you would base the, the splits on. But either way, those are both beliefs. There's no way to know about past and future because uh, we can't do experiments in time. Why was I making that point? About knowledge and belief. So that's what's important about navigating the, the age of information. You don't know, I don't know for certain, uh, let's say, what's something, what's something that I'm comfortable saying no, but I have to split it on the parts. So I'll say that I know that DNA is a double helix. I, I'll, I'm confident saying I know that DNA is a double helix. Uh, now, I've never actually done the experimentation. I've never tested the DNA myself. I've never done the X-ray crystallography myself. I've read the books. I've learned the chapters. I've, I've had it explained to me. And so I believe to a level that I'm comfortable claiming knowledge. But if you really pressed me to say, you know what, do you really know that DNA is a double helix? I don't, right? If you want to press me that far, but it's not, it's not helpful to, to, to go that far with the lack of knowledge about the things that we that we accept on authority. This has to do with the authoritarian uh, idea, or not, not authoritarianism as a political philosophy, but sometimes you accept things on authority. So let's say an example would be this. I trust all of my cousins. Let's say one of my cousins told me, I put an apple in this box. And then you came along, and you asked me, hey, are there any apples in that box? I would tell to you, yes, there is an apple in that box. And you would say, do you know that there's an apple in the box? And I say, yeah, I know there's an apple in the box. How do I know? Because my cousin just told me, he looked me straight in the eyes, that I put four apples in that box. He told me, face to face, and I, I trust him, I believe him. So if you ask me, do I know, I'm going to say I know, because that's the level of confidence that I have in my, in my cousin. Then you open the box, there's no apples in there. So my cousin lied to me. So that's how, that's how the failure of knowledge and, and confidence can work in our society in which we have to accept so much information through screens without first-hand experimentation.
So, the most concrete things, the, the highest level of competence and knowledge that you or I or anyone can have is firsthand detection through your physical senses. If you have seen something, detected it, done the experiment, done the experiment yourself, detected it through the machines, or detected it with your fingers, or you heard it, that's your most confident no. You know, that you can say, oh, I know, I know this, I know this. But there's another level, which is, there are another num number of levels, which is accepting somebody else's testimony, right? So uh, this is what, I think it, maybe you've seen the most recent Joe Rogan podcast where he's talking to Alex Jones. <laughs> Joe keeps forcing him to go online to look up something every few seconds. Uh, we all, you know, it would be great if we could all have friends to do that for us, right? Uh, all the time and even do it for ourselves. I say, you know, I know, the only thing I know for certain is that I exist. I don't know, I don't even know for certain that this world is not a not an illusion, right? Very well very well probably a simulation not based reality we'll save that for another for another day when it comes to separating knowledge and belief you know we know with 100% certainty that we exist as individuals you know you exist 100% nothing else there's nothing else you know 100% but in order to use the word know in conversation there has to be some acceptable threshold below 100% i don't know what you want to call it 90 80 85 70 whatever whatever it is for you right there's some level below absolute certainty where you're comfortable using the word no and it is okay to have that explicit discussion it's okay i had that discussion with a guy about uh evolution he said do you know evolution is true i said well i mean yeah i know you know yeah i know i took the science i did the science he said well do you know that this one fossil turns and in, turns into another you know if you've got one fossil from some period and then you've got another fossil that's got an extra limb from about i don't know 500,000 years later and you believe the carbon dating you believe the fossil and you believe that this one do you know that this one animal evolved into the other ah, well, i mean no right i don't quote unquote no to certainty but look at the phylogenetic tree look at the fossil record right there has to be some level of knowledge that you're comfortable lifting above that level in order for us to move forward otherwise we're we're reinventing the wheel the whole time right you so you if you want to say that you don't know about evolution you don't know about tesla's science or uh, elon musk's science science and you don't know about uh vaccines and all these things that that it, the age of information is eroding people's trust in or understanding of expertise in science if you want to say that you don't know all of those things fine you use that 100% definition of no all you want. I'm going to have a different threshold uh, because I've been trained and I, and I think that I think that that's reasonable. If you don't think that's reasonable, leave the comment below. We'll, we'll talk about it. <laughs> uh, I said I would talk about power, so I guess I should touch on power quickly. I've been reading a little bit of Nietzsche these days, uh, you know, the father of the idea of the will to power. And it seems that power is innate in our social dynamics uh, if it's just one person on an island there's no power dynamic there but as soon as another person comes along then there comes the power play right and power has to do with i think has to do with us surviving the the ultimate point that i'm after right because if 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 it's me and you and there's only 
one steak, let's say, and we both need to eat, and we both have three kids, and we got to feed those kids, and there's only one steak, and it's me and you, well, and a steak only feeds four people, well, listen, power's about to come into play real quick, right? So, <laughs> so we, that's what it's about, but power's about survival. Power is about acquiring resources for survival. I would like, and I promote the idea that we distribute power in our society so that so, so that as many people can survive as possible. This is why I'm for basic income. Money is power. Money to the people equals power to the people. I'm, that's why I promote that idea, so we can all collectively survive. And we don't want, we don't want the situation in which I have to compete with you mortally and you have to compete with me mortally in order to survive. How does that help our species? How does it help our species if you have to kill me to eat? That doesn't make any sense. I don't, I don't want that. Now, there is some competition, right? Maybe there are two steaks. So maybe we fight over who gets the better steak, who gets the bigger steak. But, hey, as long as I'm eating, we can have that fight. We can have that competition as long as we live to, live to tell the tale, right, as a species. My moral North Star is about the continuation of this species to Mars, to uh, Europa, to Alpha Centauri. Right. Let's 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 harness the power of the sun. Let's become a level one society. Let's do big, amazing things. And we can't do these big, amazing things if we're quibbling over crumbs. It's not possible. That's my overarching stance. Uh, that's that's a bit of an introduction into who I am. And, and as a common person, I'm just a I'm just a regular guy talking into a microphone. Um, as we are these days, trying to make sense of it all I hope maybe you'll revisit this page uh, I promise in future conversations with Kari there will be actual conversations with other people uh, this is just an introduction just me dipping my toe or my foot whatever you want to call it into the technology and I hope that we can have good conversations going forward and I hope to hear from you soon thanks bye bye